The countdown to legal recreational adult use of marijuana is underway in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Do you think you know how to use it and what it does to your body? Alcohol is poison. Just one of the opinions Dr. Jordan Tischler of Inhale MD, a Harvard-educated physician who spoke at the New England Cannabis Convention a few weeks ago in Boston, said, we'll talk with him next on In the Weeds with Jimmy Young. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of In the Weeds with Jimmy Young. Once again, brought to you by Vape Daddy's, the premier retail store dedicated to vaping your favorite substance of choice. Now, with four locations in the Boston area, in Newton, Norwood, Framingham, and Braintree, who's your daddy? Vape Daddy's the answer. Make sure you subscribe, like, and share this podcast with episodes available on iTunes and the CLNS Media Network. And a video record of this is also will be available at CLNS Media's YouTube channel. So, Dr. Jordan Tischer, first of all, thank you so much for coming in today. Well, thanks for having me, and it's always a pleasure. And so, explain to me right off the bat, what is Inhale MD? Well, Inhale MD, very simply, is my medical practice. Um, it came about through a sort of long road. Uh, my training is in internal medicine. And, you know, I'm sort of quick to point out that I'm a fairly traditional doctor. Uh, I went to Harvard College, I went to Harvard Medical School, and I trained, as I mentioned, in internal medicine at the Brigham Women's Hospital downtown. That makes me pretty normal. No, it doesn't. It makes uh. you impressive that you were, you're a Harvard, Harvard double. I think that's pretty cool. Thanks. We, <laughs> we call that preparation age. Okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, after training, I um, went out and practiced medicine for many years and in both the urgent and emergent room setting. Um, and the last 15 or so years I spent working in the emergency room at the VA hospital in West Roxbury. Um, and through that process, what I came to realize was that there are an astounding number of veterans whose lives have been dramatically harmed by alcohol primarily, but other substances as well, both legal and illegal. And having done this for so many years, I really became kind of an expert at treating these folks under these conditions. Back in 2011, 2012, when Massachusetts started thinking about the ballot initiative to make medical cannabis available, I started thinking, you know, it's interesting. I've never seen anybody sick from cannabis. After all, I've seen so many thousands sick from these other substances. And that started me to think, well, look, if I'm not seeing people who are sick from this, then maybe I should be learning about whether there's really some medical value here. Uh, and so I started reading and doing my homework and getting into the details. And I went into it, as you might imagine, from my starting point, being somewhat skeptical. But um, I emerged the other side feeling very educated and very uh, much that under the right circumstances, cannabis can be very helpful for people. Um, and then I started looking around and realizing that most of my colleagues didn't know this stuff. And furthermore, that the institution, certainly the VA, which obviously is a federal institution, uh, but even the large private institutions with which I was familiar, like Mass General and the Brigham, because of their reliance upon federal funding, were never going to be allowed or never allow their, their staff to get into this. 
So then I started to feel kind of morally obligated to to go out and make this available. So I started Inhale MD as a private practice. I have an office in Brookline and an office in Cambridge. And the idea really was to be outside the system enough that I wasn't uh, impeded by that system, but use my connections to these various large teaching hospitals to go back in and educate my colleagues about what this can do for their patients. And really the way I look at this is that I am a cannabis specialist. Think cardiologist. The idea being that I have some specialized knowledge and the time to help patients with it, but really co-manage those patients with their primary care clinicians. And that model has worked out remarkably well. How many patients do you think you have under your watch or have watch right now? Um, Just shy of a 1,000. That's awesome. And uh, obviously, positive responses. I mean, can you just give us one story, a success story of someone, one of your patients, we don't name them, but one of your patients that came in, had issues, you were able to sit him down, go over his whole medical history and his medications from Western medicine doctors, and then you introduced him to the cannabis side, and there, there were some good effects to it. I'm sure there's at least one. Um, there are many, many of them, um, and it's a little hard to pick, but I will say that the one that I typically talk about in this situation um, was I met a 42-year-old mom um, who's also a high-powered attorney who had just um, had maybe six months earlier a huge car wreck. And she had been very damaged in that process, both physically, uh, in, you know, in her body, but also she had had some um, uh, traumatic brain injury Ooh. and had developed some seizures oh. and, um, and obviously a fair amount of PTSD from the process. Um, and she had a lot of physical pain as well as the seizures that we talked about. And she had become dependent upon various opioids, two of them in particular, Percocet and Tramadol. Um, And she was feeling lousy. These opiates help to some degree with the pain, but they come with other side effects like sort of a general dysphoria and constipation. Um, and, And she was really feeling like they were not doing good things for her, even as they sort of managed her pain. But on top of that, um, her regular doctors were concerned that if they tapered off her medications, not only would her pain get worse, but her seizures might be uh, affected. And while all that was going on, she had a husband who was very, very busy working and two teenage daughters um, whose lives started to fall apart. So the... um, eldest daughter started failing out of school, and the younger daughter actually had a suicide attempt and ended up in the hospital herself. Mm. Um, So that was the context in which I met her, and we were able to start her on cannabis in a very low dose and controlled fashion, and it was remarkable. Um, As her pain got better, she simply stopped needing those opioids. Uh, which is the way I try to approach these things. I think that um, the idea that we should get off certain medicines is a inherently negative 
uh, way of approaching things, and it puts a lot of pressure on people that, you know, if you have to get off something and you have trouble, then you're a bad person or you're not really doing your best effort or something to that effect. And so I think that that's a setup for failure. Whereas if we say, like we did with this young woman, um, we have pain as a problem. Let's treat the pain, and we use cannabis as the first-line first agent. And if you need the opioid, that's okay too, but let's just see how it goes. And what turns out is that she didn't really need the opioids for a good long period of time. And her seizures were well-controlled, and uh, we had to pay some special mind to the medications that she was taking because a lot of the seizure medications can interact with certain parts of, of cannabis. Um, but over the next six months, she pretty much stopped using those opioids. She felt better. She was able to sort of put her toe back in at work, and, and that's accelerated now. I've, I've seen this lady for two, three years now. Um, her children got her full attention again, and um, the elder one got back to doing school well, and the younger one seems to have stabilized. It, it's been great. And it doesn't mean that she doesn't occasionally have a rough patch where she needs some opioids, and that's okay also, but it becomes occasional and sporadic, and it doesn't lead to the kinds of problems that brought her to me in the first place. Interesting. That's a great story. Interestingly enough, I think everyone who has any knowledge or any idea of what's going on in the world, that we have a problem with opioids in this in this country right now. And it's interesting that for decades, marijuana, cannabis was considered a gateway drug. It wasn't considered it. It was propagandized as a gateway drug. And now it seems to be being used as an exit drug. Absolutely. You know, the problem from a political point of view is that the reasons that cannabis is illegal, they're political. They were never based in any science. I mean, if you go back to the 1930s when it was outlawed the first time, these were political issues about what are we going to do with our G-men now that we don't have alcohol to beat up on after prohibition of alcohol, but also because there were various economic factors that had come along to make cannabis or hemp uh, a viable commodity that would compete with raw pulp hardwood forests. That takes a large investment to grow hardwood trees, but growing cannabis or hemp can be done easily in small um, plots of land and lousy, you know, meaning not very fertile plots of land. And who owned those the pieces of land were generally people of color. And obviously at that time in history, uh, that was not allowable, so we made this stuff illegal. Um, and certainly the one of the reasons you won't hear me use the word marijuana is because the word marijuana was used at that time to demonize Mexican immigrants and to imply that they were possessed by the devil and were taking over and raping white women and all sorts of absolute nonsense that really made it into our culture thanks in part to – the um, FBI's efforts and the movie Reefer Madness that I imagine most people have heard of. And that was kind of the political backdrop as well as the law of the land until 1969 when Timothy Leary took a case to the Supreme Court and had the original law overturned. 
and that was December of 1969. And by January of 1970, Richard Nixon, seeing the writing on the wall, figured that if we couldn't outlaw it any longer as an agricultural product, that we would make it a medical problem. And so he installed the Controlled Substances Act, which was 1970. And on it, he put cannabis and heroin into Schedule 1, which is the schedule or the category in which things go that basically we believe have no no redeeming medical value and present a huge risk to society. And there are things on Schedule 1 that legitimately do belong there, uh, most of which, in fact, are opiate derivatives, by mm-hmm. the way. Mm-hmm. But, her- uh, but um, cannabis and LSD were the two that were put there for the political reasons. There was no information to suggest that they couldn't be used medically or that they were such vicious uh, actors on our population. In fact, evidence stemming back to 1898, uh, there was a large military survey that came out of Panama looking at service people. I guess at that time it was service men um, (laughs) and, and their use of cannabis. And basically they found no harms. And, you know, there were a number of studies after that that basically confirmed that sort of thing. Yet, here we are in 1970 pretending that this is harmful so we can put it into the forbidden category on this new political system. And of course, they're still trying to change that even in the current political state down in Washington, D.C., even with an attorney general named Jeff Sessions, who's doing his best to just I don't even know. Just show that he's a a big a big shot and need and can say, hey, whatever progress was done under the Obama uh, administration, we're going to have to undo that. Um, that's politics. I don't like to get into politics. Besides, I'm one of those left wing radical <laughs> liberal guys from Newton, Massachusetts. Heaven forbid. Yeah, I went to college and learned about this stuff a long time ago. It's very hard to talk about cannabis and not talk politics at That's the current right. time. You know, right. whether it's historical or current, um, there's just so much of this that is political rather than evidence-based. Right, which is what science is all about. And if you lead with the science, for the most part, you can't argue with science. Some can't, let's just say. Shall we leave it at that? We'll leave it there. (laughs) We'll leave it at that. All right. Um, This is... uh, in the Weeds with Jimmy Young, and we're talking with Dr. Jordan Tischler of Inhale MD in Brookline. He was one of the featured speakers at the New England Cannabis Convention a few weeks back, and he talked about pain management, opioid reduction, and, of course, dosing and microdosing. That was his subject on Sunday, and it's it's really one of the things that I uh, struggle with, to be honest. I, I am a card-carrying member of the medical marijuana community. Um, I call it that just because it is MMJ. And uh, I use it for my arthritis and all the musculoskeletal situations and deals, things that I have to deal with after four major surgeries in the last 20 years. I was an athlete once, though. I mm-hmm. swear I was. <laughs> okay. And, and even try and do that uh, once in a while now and try not to get hurt. Yes. Um, because with arthritis, you either you have to use it or you're going to lose it. So you have to try and do something other than sit around and feel sorry for yourself. Well, that's true. 
in general, right? Yes, I mean, it is. If it isn't good for your knees, it's certainly good for your heart. That's right. Um, you are a registered MMJ doctor in the Massachusetts. You can give out licenses, yes or no? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so they can... Um, what does it take for a doctor to become certified for that in this program? Actually, Honestly. it's kind of pathetic. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> I'm glad I asked that question. <laughs> the, the requirement at the moment is that you take a continuing medical education class on cannabis that is required to be not more than four hours. Whoa. So that's all you need is to do a four-hour course, and then you apply to the state, and I think maybe you pay 50 bucks or so. I don't even remember. It was so long ago. But, I mean, that's unfortunately the level of education on cannabis medicine that we require. Um, And would you like to be involved in a new uh, set of educational rules, perhaps a way to to uh, take your knowledge and turn it into a course that people could study? Well, I think that there are a, a number of courses out there at this point, uh, some of which are pretty good. Um, there's one by one of the my Harvard colleagues uh, called The Answer Page. They do um, medical education stuff on a broad variety of topics, but they released one recently on cannabis and i'm i'm told that's pretty good i haven't taken it myself mm-hmm. um and so there are a couple of others across the country um but i'm deeply involved within a, a group called the association of cannabis specialists and we have a strong educational mission the education is aimed at sort of two different groups of clinicians one are our cannabis specialists and bringing people up to speed which is sort of trying to take on the the silliness of only four hours worth of education mm-hmm. um, and then the other group are what we call a referring clinicians and that's the people out there who are doing primary care or something like that who aren't going to get into uh, prescribing or recommending cannabis because, frankly, they don't have the time and they don't have the knowledge, but they're the people who would be sending patients to somebody like myself, and they need to know, too, that this is legitimate, and they need to know enough that to know when it's indicated and when it might not be indicated so that they can make appropriate referrals. So I'm deeply involved in that sort of thing. And in fact, a couple years ago, the Department of Public Health held some public hearings on a number of regulatory changes that had been proposed and, in fact, went into into effect last December, uh, amongst them, for example, allowing nurse practitioners to certify. Mm -hmm. And at that hearing, I made the very a strong pitch, shall we say, that I thought four hours once was not adequate. And I pointed out to the group that I spend about 200 hours each year keeping myself up to date on the literature and that the the ways in which I practice medicine you know, changed initially sort of day to day, then week to week. Now it's slowed down a little bit. But the bottom line is that there's a lot to learn and a lot to keep up with. So I proposed what I thought was a pretty modest 20 hours per year um, requirement for all clinicians, regardless of their degree, meaning doctors and nurses. Um, And, you know, what came of that? A big fat Zippo. (sighs) Okay. Well, that'll do it for In the Weeds, brought to you by Vape Daddies, now with four locations in the greater Boston area for all of your vaping needs and questions. Remember to subscribe to In the Weeds on clnsmedia.com. For Dr. Jordan Tischler, I'm Jimmy Young, and you've been listening to In the Weeds on clnsmedia.com.